0: All right, if you would, be turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. This morning we're going to be in verses 16 and 17. Uh, And as you're turning there, let me just share with you the key truth that I want us to walk away with this morning. It's that we should not be ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation offered, and this is very important, it is offered without distinction in Christ alone, by faith alone, through his grace alone. Let me read that again. We should not be ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation offered without distinction in Christ alone, by faith alone, through his grace alone. So if you would give your attention to the reading of God's word, this is Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for... In it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we step into this, we, we cannot forget the context, the circumstance. It's a church divided, a church that was trying to say God loves one group more than he loves the other based on some sort of circumstance. The Jews were leaning on historicity. We were the chosen ones. We, there is no you without us. So you owe us homage. We are the first. And then the Gentiles, and it's very important that we keep in mind, Gentile and Greek are synonymous, both mean not Jew, and would have included many tongues, tribes, and nations. So it was a broad ethnic racial group under a big categorical umbrella. They said, well, if you're so chosen, why'd you get kicked out? And it got turned over to us. May we remind you from your very own text that it is the older who will serve the younger. Yes, we're new, but we're favored. And so it was a divided church along lines that were patently unbiblical. And so Paul was trying to step into this to heal it with the power of the gospel, right? That that he was desirous of this church having its glory restored. He wasn't calling for God to lay it to waste and call it Ichabod. He wanted it healed. Now we could learn something from that, because I think there are times that we are ashamed of things such that we would rather go scorched earth as if a clean slate was somehow a better slate instead of a messy slate redeemed and reconciled in Christ to God's glory. And so the question that I have for us as we start this is what aspects of Christianity are you ashamed of? Now, uh, I often wrestle with some of the terminology. I know many of you... Uh, wrestle with the word evangelical, and you should. It has a flawed history from the start. It was never really a good term, actually, if you know the history of the term. And so, But it's been stuck kind of everywhere and created as this broad umbrella, almost like the word Gentile it has this like broad categorization, but a really, really interesting history in practice. Some of you may be ashamed of the word reformed. I, I have to confess there are times I'm ashamed of both of those terms in some ways, right? That I, I don't want to be seen as grumpy and erudite. And 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 you may say, well, you might want to try acting different. Okay, that's a good point, but that has nothing to do with being reformed. That has everything to do with being postmodern. That's different. And so, um, and so uh, maybe Presbyterian. Yeah, I'm me too, sometimes. These categorizations, these, they seem to be ways in which we are trying almost to differentiate ourselves and suggest that God loves us better based on the category. Why is Christian not sufficient, you may say? And there's a host of other things that we could be embarrassed about, the behavior of Christians and the reportage thereof, but here's where you got to be careful. We do need to critique those things. And in fact, where does judgment begin? In the house of the Lord. So, like Paul, if you remember, Paul says, I don't need y'all to judge me. And he wasn't flexing or trying to say, You can't speak into my life. What he was saying is, No, I have been doing the hard work of judging my own actions and thoughts. I am constantly putting myself before the gospel. We, the church, are to carry on that tradition. And we should do so, like Paul, seeking reconciliation instead of carrying around a chainsaw, lopping off limbs that aren't ours to cut off. I'm not saying it's easy. There are times, genuinely, when I think, is this my tribe? Is this my tribe? Is this my people? Is this what I'm associated with? How do I explain this? Well, I've got good news for you. Most people who you are in relationship with While those terms are meaningful and can cause some uh, friction, your relationship with them is going to be far more the prejudice, far more important than the terminology. You can actually redeem in how you live and act to your friends and neighbors in some measure what they think about Christians. In fact, I've often heard people say this. They'll, They'll be lambasting Christians. This was when I was a physical therapist, I would say, hey, you remember, I'm, I'm kind of one of the, oh, I'm not talking about you. Now, I could arrogantly be like, oh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Maybe you should tell the others. Uh, no, that shouldn't make us think ourselves favored. In fact, it should cause some grief that there is this dichotomy in anyone's head between someone who's called a Christian and us in some measure, right? Because of what it does to the glory of God. Not what it does to us. Too often we're concerned, and I am among you. What does it do to me? Because I just want you to like me. And so we have to be careful that we don't let this carry us away from the gospel and be ashamed of the gospel. Because you may say, well, what am I supposed to invite these people into? Your home, your life, first and foremost. And if, if it rightly works out, the church itself should be some measure of that. And if not, we need to work on that. We need to know some ways in which we are inhospitable or causing some sort of friction for those who don't know the gospel. That has to be what is most important to us. That we would not in any way, shape, or form put barriers up to those who need this truth as much as we do and have needed. So it's important that we, like Paul, be eager to share. Because when he says here, for, I am not ashamed of the gospel. That for is therefore something. And he's just said, I can't wait to come share this with you. And the reason he can't wait to come share it, and you got to think about this for a second. How many of you, uh, when you hear you've got a ruckus going on in your family or between neighbors or between friends, you say, I need to get in the middle of that. I need to insert myself in the middle of this, get triangulated and maybe even have them stop being mad at each other and now get mad at me. That would be great. Paul is taking a great risk here. Remember, he didn't plant this church. They don't know him as that authority. He also has never met them. So he's got no relational capital personally with them. And yet he comes in and says, listen, I am an apostle, not as a flex, but as as he is chosen in humility, saying, I want to help you. I want to see this glorious picture of Revelation 7 held together for the glory of God, your joy, and for the life of the world. I am eager because it doesn't depend on me, and it doesn't depend on you. It depends on the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's good news to us, right? How many of you, the rhetorical question, no show of hands, but sometimes struggle with sharing the gospel because you're afraid that their salvation depends in some part on you. Either you got to get the word so right that if you mess this up, they're never they're going to be eternally condemned because you didn't get it right. Let me remind you of the Samaritan woman at the well, who would have gotten a D minus in any decent evangelism class at any Bible college in America, because she went had the audacity to say to her friends and neighbors, "Y'all should." I don't know if this is the guy or not, but really, you ought to come hear him talk. What kind of... Wait, hang on a second. (laughs) There's a lot missing, ma'am. But yet, yet, she is in Scripture as an exemplar. Would that we were so excited about Jesus that getting every little paradiddle right would not be what keeps us from saying, I may have some of this wrong. I may not have this all worked out. Yes, I've got questions about Hitler too. I don't know how to fix that either. But... You need to hear what this guy has to say because shame and guilt will kill you. And so think about for a second, what keeps us from sharing the gospel many times is not at all what the person needs in the first place. Granted, I, I get it. Like most, we're all afraid of the, the question of evil, right? And the Hitler, like, which has now become known as the Nazi fallacy, you can't invoke that. Uh, as a charge against someone else, right? Because it's been so abused and misused that it is almost without any sort of meaning. But it's like the one thing we are fearful of is how do you answer Stalin, Hitler, um, uh, any, of, any of the major dictators that have killed lots and lots of people? Does that really matter to someone, a friend or a neighbor who doesn't know Jesus, whose marriage is coming apart at the seams? Does that matter to the young lady who's just had a miscarriage and she has no earthly idea why. It's one of the few times she was filled with hope and it was taken. Not because of anything she did. Does it matter to the person whose loved one passed without any one of their loved ones around them because of the present circumstances that had to be invoked at many nursing homes? Do you really think That being able to answer the Hitler question is why you should withhold from those people the glory of the gospel. No. No, it is a fallen world for us all. We all need it. And we should recognize our indebtedness to give it to them because who else is going to? They're in your sphere of influence. They're in our sphere of influence. They are entrusted to us. This is Paul's sense of being a debtor to those who don't believe. And so he is not ashamed of this gospel. And remember, gospel is good news. It's good news not because of anything you have done or you will do. It is good news because of what God has done, is doing, and will do. And that is powerful for us to remember. Which is why he says it is the power of God for salvation. And it depends solely upon him. And he goes on to say, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's without distinction. And you may say, well, hang on. Keep reading, Mr. Barham. Don't take an English major to see. It says to the Jew first. Well, he's talking here historicity. He's saying that, the, and do remember, Israel was not a nation of its own making. It was a group of people from all over the Middle East that the Lord fashioned together into a nation called Israel that he then charged with sharing the glory of the good news as they understood it thus far with all the surrounding nations, right? It was their job to help make the family bigger. And then by virtue of whoever came in, that would then be their role and calling as well. This is the calling of the church. So when he says do first, that's not hierarchical. That's just in order, Greek and Gentile would also be synonymous terms. Again, remember, big umbrella, big category, multiple ethnicities and races. And so then he goes on to say, for in it, meaning the power of the gospel to save those who believe, it is the righteousness of God and it's revealed from faith for faith. Now, this terminology is very important. See, the righteousness of God means that it is according to a standard, Remember, God is holy. God is, is, is perfect, so he is the standard. And so if he saves you, think of this. Then he has, he's the only one who has the right to be judge. which means we don't. And yet, we try to. Do we not? Do we not try to say, I don't think that person can be saved? I don't think those people ought be saved. Too often we do that and we question instead of seek to heal. We are the ones who make the distinctions whereas God says, no, the distinction is my righteousness and if I'm the one deciding then you're in good hands and not only is it his righteousness that is the standard, it is his righteousness that is imputed to us, given to us in Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone. And if the judge is the one who gives it to you and then renders it worthy of offering, what greater confidence and assurance could you have? Think of it. What if God said, I save you, but but your fellow peers have to decide whether or not you get to stay? What kind of circumstance would that be? Think of how drunk with power we would become with each other. Think of how many eyes would be put out. Or let's say the world got to choose. Or let's say some other source in the universe got to choose. See, that is not comforting. It is a very comforting thing that the one who says, I am the standard, I am the judge, you have been granted the standard in Christ. You can now, as we read in our benediction every week, can stand before me in grace. We're not being saved from God, we're being saved to God. Because of his righteousness. It says, And this is a complex phrase, it says, from faith by faith. So it's essentially saying that it was God's faithfulness, do remember all of his promises to redeem and save are yes and amen in Jesus. So he was faithful. So faith is grounded in, established in him. And we receive that finished faithfulness on the part of Christ as deemed uh, uh, possible by God himself. We receive that in an act of submission called faith. Many of us struggle with, well, isn't faith kind of a work of some kind? Aren't you doing something? No, you're surrendering everything. You are, at the end of yourself, recognizing you can't do anything to earn God's love. We struggle with this. Because it's still true, as the text is going to tell us, even in our sanctification. You do know that even in sanctification, you do not vary God's love for you. Did you know that? Do you know that that, that even in sanctification, while we are called to do good works and we are invited into the work of the kingdom, it doesn't change the eternal weight of glory. It doesn't change his eternal love for us because if it could, there is nobody left in this room who could stand. Nobody. I know you all too well and you know me too well. Praise be to God that it is from faith and, and to faith, and that that is the truth of the Christian life until Christ comes home and, and brings to full fruition what is already true in him, a finished work. And so it's, it's critically important that we recognize that it is the gospel all the way through. It doesn't change. The thing that we needed, the thing that we so desperately needed to be restored to, reconciled to God, is the same thing that we desperately need in our continuing maturation into the fullness of the image of Christ. There is no, I'll take it from here. You don't become the standard. God remains the standard. And that is good news for us because we can't mess it up. And Paul's going to get to what you're thinking. Well, we can't mess it up. I, I should sin so that grace may abound, Yes? Well, what's Paul going to say? No. No, he's going to say, no, not at all. Bad question. I get it, though. And so it's very important that we see the firm foundation that's being laid here and that we are continually moved by the gospel. So if you would indulge me for just a moment, I've included the description of the gospel from our membership material. I get it, and you don't really return to your membership material a whole bunch, But this, uh, whether it's this one or some other description of the gospel that is moving to you, that gives you the fullness of the gospel, would be important for you to return to regularly because it's too easy to forget. It's too easy for us to get tangled up and go, yeah, but, yeah, but I've lived a little bit and now I'm wondering, I get it. But let's start with what the gospel is not, because I think we have to untangle before we can entangle The gospel is not merely a legal or business transaction. That's insanely important because if it's only a legal or business transaction, that's a commodification, not a relationship. There are legal aspects, yes? There are some businessy type aspects to salvation that we, we can recognize or motifs, if you will, but it is not the whole of it. And when we treat it like that's what it is, it was just a legal transaction then we are prone to not see it for the fullness of its beauty, which is the relationship with the very creator of the universe, and that should move us. It is also not a rescue plan. We are not being delivered from the foul aspects of this world. We are not being delivered from our flesh in a way that says that this this thing is bad, that we would, what we call dualism, see material as bad and only soul as good. Do remember, when we get to Romans 8, that creation groans not only under the weight of death, but even more, even more important to creation is the revealing of the sons and daughters of God which should teach us something. We act as if death is the most important thing to be feared. We've seen that in our culture over the last year. It's an eye-opening thing and and is a wonderful opportunity for the church to step in and speak to that fear, both evidentially, not by being foolish, by the way. I didn't just say, so rush out and lick the handles on all the stuff at Walmart. What it did say was we ought to be able to say, hey, here is the good news. This is why this is not, this doesn't uh, overtake us. This is how we can be creative and caring for and loving each other within the banks of the river. And so too often we just see the gospel as an opportunity to get away from all those people. And then it's not something we do. It's only what God does. It's not just the movement from rebel to righteous related to a single historical moment in time. This has been one of the more devastating aspects, uh, I, I would say, as far as like, you hear someone's testimony, you hear that road to Damascus experience, and you're scratching your head going, well, I must not be saved because I ain't gone through nothing crazy like that. I mean, I ain't seen no visions. I ain't been knocked down. I ain't been blind for a while. You know, maybe I need to run out and sin a little bit so my salvation will seem shinier to me. Almost like you're, you're a teenage Quaker who's being cut loose for the weekend only to come back and respect the horse and buggy stuff. That's not what it is. That's not what it is meant to be for us. In fact, it is not a single moment in time. Salvation is the whole of your story. It is from justification through to your glorification. It is an ongoing process. It is not dictated by the experience on the front end. In fact, I, I myself have often quit sharing my own story because it becomes too much the focus. Because it almost seems like, man, God must really like you or God must have really needed you to come looking for you because you were horrible. That's not the point at all. Susan has never known a day in her life where God didn't love her. Sometimes I covet that. i got to be honest with you. And then there are times where she wonders, I'm sure, why did not I have a crazy story like Cameron's, an encounter with God that will stick with you. But that's not the point. So we got to make sure that we don't reduce the gospel to these things. And it's also—it's uh, not the work of Jesus apart from God or the Spirit. It's a Trinitarian work. It's very important that we see it takes the fullness of the Trinity to accomplish. Jesus is not rescuing us from this mean old angry God who's a cosmic killjoy. Even the off quoted "Jesus saves sinners" is far too shorthand for the gospel. It's limited. It doesn't communicate its fullness. I'm glad that he does save sinners, but if that's where we stay, we, then we don't understand the power of the resurrection to set us free to walk in newness of life, right? And then while each of these elements of, uh, of truth has elements of truth, they are not the whole truth. The gospel is the power of God for the total salvation of everyone who believes and the restoration of all things, and this is important, on a cosmic scale. We are stewards not just of ourselves, but of creation itself and should leverage it, use it, improve it, be creative with it as part of the declaration of the fullness of the gospel. And it goes on more fully, God the Creator has acted according to His will to deliver us. His created sons and daughters from our sins and restore us to him. He did this by sending his son, Jesus Christ, who gave his life on the cross for the sins of his people, satisfying God's wrath towards sin. Jesus was then raised from the dead to grant us newness of life in the resurrection. He's ascended to heaven where he continues to intercede for us. And he's coming again to make all things new and glorious. In summary... You are not being saved from God, but you're being saved to God. He has pursued you in Christ so that you may dwell and be blessed by his presence for all eternity. This is what we are supposed to be practicing for in worship. Now you may say, whoa, 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 whoa. did you just say we're going to have to listen to you talk for an eternity? No, I okay, got good news. The speaker is going to change out. And just be Jesus. And he's just gonna radiate, and that's gonna be plenty for us. And if you wait only until then to appreciate the fullness thereof, I think you are going to suffer some manner of immature loss in that sense. Would that we would recognize that God promised that when his people gather together, No matter how messy it is, no matter how many rows there are, no matter how many feet apart, no matter how much of your face is covered, no matter how weird the whole thing is, no matter the parquet dance floor that hadn't seen a good dance in about a year. He gathers. Does that move you at all? Do you come expectant to receive from his word? Do you recognize how important it is to be here for the call to worship? That's just not some arbitrary scripture that we picked out of thin air that it actually is God saying, gather because I am near. You understand that we work very hard to make sure you've heard the gospel before I can get up here and mess it up. Either by failing to say it rightly or going on too long, which I kind of did in that first service. I got excited. We got no backstop on this one. I'm used to doing three services. Y'all are getting one and a half. Let's just be honest. But... He speaks to us through his word. This is why we call and respond. You may be thinking, why do we read all that stuff? Well, because you're not an audience. We are participating in practicing for the new heavens, new earth. And so we should make sure that we're listening and participating, right? That remember, it is our job to lean in and listen, what we see from the gospel, what we see in the parables is how Jesus would decenter folks. It is not incumbent upon everybody else to make sure you have everything you need in order to be able to rightly hear. Do you know that this is the good news? We should come expecting because of the power of the gospel, not the weakness of the men and women who participate up here. And so he goes on to say, it is critical to keep in view that salvation is not only about what you don't do, but more about what you do or how you live in freedom in Christ. This is very important. You might say, I've had a pretty good week. I didn't kill anybody this week, which begs questions about previous weeks, of course. But when we only focus on what we don't do, we are robbing ourselves of the actual resurrected newness of life. Does not doing something sound to you like life more abundant? It's what we actively engage in because we recognize we, we have our antennas up, our eyes open for unbelievers who the Lord has entrusted to us in our spheres of influence to whom we are indebted to give the gospel. And not just in verbiage, by the way. Sometimes it looks completely different than words, but eventually to be the gospel, you've got to get to Jesus and God the Father and the Holy Spirit. But too often, we want to jump, we want to get it out of the way instead of being a relationship over the long haul as God has been with us. We're looking for the quick hit instead of the long obedience in the same direction. Jesus came to grant God's children life more abundant. The glorious salvation includes past, present, and future realities known as justification slash adoption, sanctification, and glorification. The gospel brings us all the way home to dwell with and enjoy God for eternity and ensures us of God's love uh, for us, giving us peace and joy as the Holy Spirit guides us in grace and perseverance. This is not just good news. It is great news and we should start acting like it. We should start living like it, right? We, again, should be the most hopeful, creative people in the room. Now, I know Stephanie Knapper's thinking right now, I just had a conversation with you about your cynicism, your half-emptiness. Half, half well, I, I'm the leader of the church. I have to moderate expectations. I can't be the one claiming, naming and claiming things because you'll get nervous. I, I, you know, sell, sell low and buy high, as they say. And so, uh, so when, you know, there's times where we do have to moderate things, but it is very important that we be creative, that we be the folks who are offering the solutions instead of being long on diagnosis, short on cure, long on cynicism, short on hope. Now, that doesn't happen just by saying it. You have to fight for it because the other comes natural, Right? We're all naturally, in some way, cynical or naturally, in some way, uh, speak negatively of things, even the hopeful like Stephanie. And so it's very important that we be framed and shaped by the gospel so as that when we go to give it to somebody, go to share it with them, there's no dissonance. They're not looking at you going, wait, I don't see at all what you're talking about. I hear the words, but I don't see it. So Paul, this is why he wants to be with them and do this in person. He longs to see them face to face so he can share this gospel because it's got its own power and it's not dependent on him. And notice he appeals to the second half of Habakkuk 2.4. He says it is the righteous who will live by faith. Now it's important if you're going to understand why he's using that here to remember the story of Habakkuk. We preached on it some years ago, and do remember that, and and Josh uh, speaks to this often, the opposite of faith is not doubt. I don't know how you can be a Christian and look at the world and read scripture and not doubt. If you're not doubting, you're probably not paying attention or getting involved very much in some measure, because it is, we are limited, and the circumstances are broken and fallen. And questioning is not the main problem. It's the arrogance of thinking you already know. It's the arrogance of thinking you don't need to do any plank work, that it's your job to point out what's wrong with the world and the church. And so what he's saying is, this guy Habakkuk had cried out to the Lord because Israel was a hot mess. And they were being uh, ugly to poor people and widows and orphans and they were shedding blood in the streets and they weren't doing anything they were supposed to do. So Habakkuk cried out to the Lord and the Lord said, you know what? I hear you and I'm going to deal with it. Uh, Babylonians, y'all ready? Because we're fixing to go take care of these folks. And Habakkuk goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's a terrible idea. I mean, who am I to say? But that's a terrible idea. I know you're God and all, but just hear me out for a second, Lord. They're going to give praise to their fish hooks, which they would hook people through the jaw and string them along on this giant chain, not nice fishing line. And they're going to worship their nets and the, all the instruments by which they hurt people. They're not going to glorify you. I don't see. I can't see it. What's interesting is God kind of remains silent. You almost get the impression he's like, and? And Habakkuk responds in great faith. He says, but... Even though I can't see it, even though I'm doubting it's a good idea, I will stand my watch and wait for you. And the Lord responds by saying, all right, you ready? is like, okay, yeah. I'm still going to take them away with the Babylonians, but what you're going to do is make a little placard, about yay big. You're going to write on it in Hebrew, the righteous shall live by faith, and it'll be such that when somebody is running for their life, as they come by, They'll be able to see it and understand and know how it is they're going to survive exile. Okay? That's what you get to do. So what Paul is saying to us here is we want to be able to make the gospel so clear in how we live that those who are caught up in the chaos of life in a fallen world can easily look at our lives and see The righteous shall live by faith because we are the righteous in God's righteousness, living by the faith that he has granted to us. Which is what he's now going to unpack for the whole rest of Romans. He's going to show them what this means. He's going to show us what it means. So my question to us is why should we not be ashamed of the gospel? That is a great question that we ought to ask ourselves periodically because it's hard sometimes not to be ashamed of the things surrounding the gospel and then how that begins to infiltrate and cause us to begin to question the gospel itself. And so you, again, want to keep somewhere in your practices and habits of faith A periodic look at some definition of the gospel that gives you the fullness of its glory. Whether it's something you have found in scripture that does that or a series of scriptures or this from your membership material or somewhere else, doesn't matter. We need periodically to have in front of us the beauty of the gospel and then wrestle with, Lord, here's where I'm not, either I have forgotten my justification Right? There are times where shame and guilt just overwhelms us. That's you forgetting your justification by faith. It just is. And then there are times where we we judge our sanctification in ways that God never would. We over, we we way over involve ourselves. We we have these measures where one of the, did you know that one of the measures of sanctification is your ability to rest? <laughs> That is an un-American thing. I've, that's the most un-American thing Cameron's ever said. It really isn't. I've said many more un-American things. Did you know that, that, that feasting, learning how to feast well, especially upon the Lord's Day Sabbath, is a measure of your sanctification? Did you know that how much you read your Bible mm, isn't? Should you read your Bible regularly? Absolutely. But never under tyranny, never under fear, never under duress. Take and eat, for it is good. And do remember that when you gather with other people and you and every Sunday you're getting Old and New Testament. You're welcome. So for those of you are like, I didn't read my Bible this week, if you were here, that's a lie. So now you're guilty of lying, not, not reading the Bible. It's different. But we should not be ashamed of the gospel. Because Jesus wasn't ashamed of us. Jesus is still, and I know we've tried real hard. He's still not ashamed of us. You know how I know? Because he intercedes for us. You know how else I know? Because the church is still here. You know how else I know? Because he offers us this table. Because he knows that we need it On a regular basis. He knows that we need our faith nourished. If we're going to be debtors to the people around us, if we're going to be debtors to those who need the gospel, we have to be nourished and built up in the power of the Spirit. We have to be reminded of what Jesus has done for us. We have to have some tangible way. This is the word made visible. These these things help us along the way to recognize that it's not just, we don't have just a knowledge problem. It is not some disembodied thing. No, this is an embodied reality. This is a gift that he's given to us. And so would you, as we take together as family this morning, be considering first and foremost that Jesus, he wasn't ashamed of you and he's still not. He's still not. And I know that's, I'm ashamed of a lot of things, but Jesus isn't. And and it's not that we are now free to do what we want. No, that's to set us free from the shackles of the thing that we are ashamed of. And when you receive uh, the the cup, would you consider meditate on the fact that you are filled with a newness of life that empowers you to walk in the power of the resurrection in the fullness of life so that that can be given away. You are filled up so as to pour out. I know some of you, that makes you nervous. Well, listen, if you're a parent, that, that's your main calling, right? I mean, th- that's, if that was all you got to do between here and eternity, amen and amen, especially if those children entrusted to you so encountered the gospel as to know Christ as King and Savior. If you work in a job of some kind that, that puts you in contact with other people, don't Add to your life. Take assessment of what you already have and what you're already doing. This is not in addition to. This is in the midst of. That's different, isn't it? So remember what Jesus said to that group that was gathered. Was there a group of people you should have been more ashamed of to eat dinner with? That on the last night you're supposed to have dinner with them, you know one of them is going to turn you over to Satan. Do remember that Judas was at that meal. And he didn't tell Judas, you have no part with me. This messes with our sacramentology, something fierce. And then Peter, who's going to deny him three times, who's just been full of, as my grandma would say, malarkey. I'm not sure if I just cussed or not. I I don't know what that means exactly, but she always told me I was full of it. And I thought it was a good thing. I don't think it is. And the rest are going to scatter too. You remember, they're not even going to go ahead to Galilee where he told them he'd meet them. They're going to be holed up in some upper room, scared to death. He's going to have to walk through a door to get their attention. And even Thomas is like, eh, that's cute. I need to see some more evidence, if you don't mind. So this, this is who he's going to build the church on? This is the A team? There's no, no other team? Yes. And to those people, just as he will say to us, we, who are not the B team, nor are we the A team, we're just the team. He took bread and he broke it. He said, This is my body, it's given for you. And in that breaking, what he was breaking is the yoke of sin and shame and guilt and the wrath of God, which was satisfied because of the givenness of his body. And as the meal went on, he reached for that cup and he said, This, this is my blood spilled for the forgiveness of your sins. Poured out the new covenant. What's new about it is what's completed in Christ, what's now made possible. It's not a whole brand new bunch of stuff. It's not like, hey, throw out your Old Testament. Don't worry about all that stuff. We've got a whole new bill of goods here. No, what he said is now you get to enjoy pleasing the Lord your God because there is no debt between you and him anymore. And so as you receive, if you would hold, now, let me give you a couple of instructions. When you come to the table, if you hold out both hands, you'll get the good bread and the so-so juice. If you hold out one hand, you get the styrofoam and the juice. So you just let me know, let Paul know what you want by the ordering of your hands. How this is going to work is we're going to break the room in half. So uh, from the shellings across, I think, to the Hamiltons, you all will come to me from their back, which is the Davises, the Rooks, Jollies. Uh, Lynn Wagner, you all will go to Paul and how it'll work. Uh, it's going to look slightly like chaos for a second. We'll start, uh, we'll go from, from the middle row forward and you'll exit as you, if you're on the outside, exit on the outside, receive, and go back to the inside. The middle folks, you get dealer's choice. Pick which aisle you want to go down and return the other way. And so if you would, Then receive, hold. And when you come back to your chair, if you would just stand, because we'll sing the doxology and then we'll all take together. Do remember as you're moving about, if you would have your mask on, that would be helpful to us. All right, if you would, I'm going to pray, and then you come. Father, thank you that you continually nourish us in so many ways, that we have this beautiful opportunity to to taste, to recognize that the gospel is not just in word, it's in deed as well. That The gospel is not just spiritual, it's physical, that it changes everything. Would you use this meal to nourish us in our eagerness to share the gospel to those who we are truly indebted to, those who you have given us in our spheres of influence to steward. We are to steward our relationships with unbelievers. Help us do that out of the beauty and power of the gospel instead of trying to do it in our own strength and foolishness and sinfulness. Remind us of who and whose we are in this meal. In Christ's name, amen.